Welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our transfer market insiders and pundits extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, a top academic institute has released figures on transfer spend by European clubs. We assess the stories behind the data as Manchester United fail to make even the top 20. Cristiano Ronaldo's move to Juve is yet to fully ignite, but his impact has been keenly felt in other ways. How big an influencer has social media become in the business of the transfer market, and how will it help shape the future of the elite clubs? Raheem Sterling is set for contract talks at Man City, as Pep Guardiola looks to hold on to a key man. But will the winger's agents cause City a transfer headache and repeat the hardball tactics that saw him leave Liverpool? And contenders or pretenders in the Champions League, we give our verdict on who's most likely to bring home the biggest prize in club football. Okay, Duncan, well, we're going to start with a question for you. The International Centre for Sports Studies, which is a Swiss academic institute, came up with a transfer league spend table that you've uh, stuck out there on Twitter if anyone wants to see it. And it's quite interesting. Uh, what, what do you make of the, the results? Manchester United not in the top 20, Barcelona at the top and Liverpool in second. Yeah, I, I think that the most relevant uh, part is what you mentioned about Manchester United. Um yeah, it's very simple. Uh, we spent most of the summer and the, the first part of the season discussing um, Jose Mourinho um, asking Manchester United uh, for uh, further reinforcements, for further spend in the transfer window. His argument being that uh, the team club had fallen behind Manchester City in terms of quality of squad when he arrived at the club. Manchester City had outspent on transfer fees over the, the two years he'd been at the club by 53%, according to the figures from the same academic institute. Um, Manchester City won the league last season. If Manchester United wanted to compete for the league this season, then it, they would need to at least match and um, better outspend City in the summer window. Um, and here you have the numbers um, for what happened, uh, combining the January window and combining the summer window. What was Manchester United's response? They actually spent less money on transfer fees than <laughs> the 20 um, clubs that make that table. Um, I think they're even further below. I, I don't know their exact place because um, CIS didn't publish that, but the team at the bottom of the 20, Napoli, spent 100 million. And uh, United's uh, investment in the same period is roughly 77 million euros. Um, and you can go through within the Premier League um, in order who spent more Liverpool, 298 million, Chelsea, 202 million, uh, Everton, 166 million, Manchester City, 159, Arsenal, 150, Fulham, 140 million, Leicester City, 128 million, West Ham, 170. Southampton 112, Brighton and Hove Albion 103 million. So it just underlines that point, which has been sort of central to so much media discussion over the last few months, that um, that Ed Woodward and Manchester United have uh, have turned off the tap on spending 
um, which begs the question of what do they actually expect Mourinho to deliver? Do they actually want to win the Premier League? Do they really think the squad they have is, is capable of winning the Premier League? And does that bother them? I think the answer to that, Duncan, is a fairly staunch no. Um, they don't, <clears throat> well, they don't believe or certainly don't want to invest in Manchester United winning uh, the Premier League or the Champions League. Clearly, the mindset uh, within the administration at Manchester United is simply to make money for the club and for the Glazer family, the owners of the club, because it's eye-watering um, that Liverpool's gross spend in the last two windows is €298 million. Euros. <clears throat> and it's interesting, I think we've become desensitised to figures like this because the markets have become so grossly, uh, grossly inflated in recent years. And of course, if you spend over €200 million uh, Euros on one player in Neymar at PSG, then €298 million Euros over two windows doesn't seem as much. But in the case of Liverpool, it's the they're almost the anti-United, if you like. Well, we obviously know they have been the anti-United for the entire history, but they are the, and they're the anti-United in terms of spending because um, <clears throat> FSG, the American owners um, at Liverpool, uh, have notoriously not invested on the same level as their rivals in the in the last between five, six years, certainly. And now in, in the space of seven months, have invested almost 300 million euros uh, and that tells you something that, that they, they feel like that investment is worth it. They, they obviously trust their manager. They um, believe that they're building something. The confidence um, which they've gained by reaching the Champions League final has obviously um, helped you know, give them uh, an impetus with regards to spending and, and they, they reckon obviously there's a good chance of winning a trophy in the next season or so. They kept Mo Salah, which was incredibly important as well. But if you're Jose Mourinho at Manchester United and you're looking at the, the funds available to Jurgen Klopp, who has won, you know, one Bundesliga title, uh, but certainly nothing at Liverpool, um, and you're asking yourself, well, why are my club not investing in, in me and my judgment? Then you would think you're at a great disadvantage uh, going into, well, we already know that in the, in, in the, even in the infancy of this season. So the transfer spend league makes for very, very, I think, dis uh, Disappointing, if not um, quite shocking reading for Manchester United fans who are used to being uh, one of the elite clubs when it comes to recruitment. And they are no, no longer and haven't been, I think, for the last uh, probably decade, actually, since they sold Cristiano Ronaldo in 2008 to Real Madrid. They failed to invest, other than Paul Pogba, um, when they broke the transfer record, they failed to invest in the same might or way as their, not just their English rivals, but their European rivals? I think, I think they've, they've spent, um, and I think, I think it, again, this is something that's very much in focus now. I mean, we, we saw this weekend um, a group of Manchester United fans pay uh, for a banner to be flown above Turf Moor um, ahead of kick-off. Uh, the Manchester United Burnley match, um, which read quite simply, Ed Woodward, a specialist in failure. And um, there is certainly a large group of Manchester United supporters, and I wrote about this in the, the transfer window column for the Daily Record at the weekend, who um, do not uh, buy the, uh, the discussion that 
Manchester United's failure to win the Premier League comes down to Jose Mourinho's failures as a manager. They see the bigger picture of where Manchester United have gone from um, following Sir Alex Ferguson's retirement 2013 and David Gill's departure at Chief, Chief Executive to where they are now under Ed Woodward. Uh, five years later, no Premier League title um, the second place under Mourinho last season, the closest they've got to winning the Premier League title again. Um, they question not only the lack of spending in the last year, but also the, the inefficiency of the spending over the Woodward um, era, as it's been described um, by some journalists. Um, and, and the argument, which I think is very fair, is that you know, Manchester United have spent more money in that period that Woodward's been in charge in transfers than ever before, but they haven't spent it cleverly. So um, you've had uh, the mistakes over, for example, very basic one, Marouane Fellaini, costing them more than the release clause because um, they didn't uh, activate the release clause at the time, and David Moyes, um, uh, only summer transfer window. Um, buying a player like Angel Di Maria and allowing Louis van Gaal to tell him um, to stop dribbling, which saw Di Maria um, uh, shocked, disgusted, and uh, uh, seeking a move out of United inside a year of having, you know, being delighted to join the club as, as the club's record transfer. And at that point, the most expensive transfer um, in the history of English football. Um, they see attempts to uh, sign Gareth Bale um, before he went to Real Madrid without ever uh, setting up a, a contract with the player, uh, thinking they could just gazump um, Madrid's bid at the last minute as if you were buying a house as opposed to a human being with, with his desires to succeed in football. Um, uh, the mess over trying to get Cesc Fabregas out of Barcelona. Um, signing Bastian Schweinsteiger when he was uh, finished as a top-level player because of injury. I mean, the list goes on and on. And, and there, you know, this sort of final uh, disgust is, is at the, the, the off-the-record briefings that we talked about in the transfer window um, on the final deadline day, in which it was made very clear that um, Jose Mourinho's request to sign a centre-back um, which I think most Manchester United fans can see that the club badly need improvement at centre-back, um, had been knocked back because the board, uh, headed by Ed Woodward, had decided that there was no value in the transfer market for the centre-backs that Mourinho had asked for and that they would have ended up signing, had they signed, for example, Toby Alderweireld, a, a defender who was no better than the, um, the fifth-best defender they have on their books. And, um, you know, this group of you from the Terrace um, put a statement out which made it quite clear that and, and, and said they don't want a bean counter, as they described Ed Woodward, making decisions over a manager who's won multiple trophies about who are the best players for Manchester United. Um, and all of this, to me, makes perfect sense. All of it's things we've we've discussed quite extensively in this programme. And, and all of it is going to be an important issue for um, Edward Wood and Manchester United and the Glazers to deal with because um, it doesn't just come down to the manager when the fans start targeting the board and the ownership and saying, we don't think it's about purely the manager, we think it's about the way you run this football club. 
Um, and uh, then when they make decisions about where they go from here, where they go in terms of funding the current manager, whether they want to change the manager or add a director of football, they have to take that fan opinion into account in where they go from here. Duncan, there'll be fans listening to this, probably Liverpool fans, who'll say, well, you know, yes, we've spent £298 million, but when we sold uh, Philip Coutinho to Barcelona for 140 what why is uh, this list not as net transfer spend, or why would it not be useful to have net transfer spend as opposed to gross? I think, you know, you hear people talking about net transfer spend all the time. I think net transfer spend is only relevant in terms of uh, financial fair play. So, um, and it's not the net transfer spend per se, it's whether you're spending within the revenues of the club so you can meet your financial fair play requirements for the Premier League and Europa League and adhere to the rules. Um, and then the other side of net spend is if you look at it from a manager's point of view, what's he interested in? Is he interested in um, numbers on the accounting book or is he interested in the quality of players that are being provided for him? You ask any manager, they're not interested in what what they what the club has taken in and what the club has put out. They're interested in what they are able to put on the field. And obviously, if you're an intelligent club, you can make buys that where you get players underneath them the real value. But on in the round, on the whole, the more you spend in the transfer market, the higher the quality of players you get. So you as a manager, the important thing is gross spend. And, you, you know, obviously fans want to say, my manager's doing better because he spent less in the market than yours and your manager spent an extortionate amount and he's not doing, not doing well enough. But actually, the, the ultimate uh, importance is what kind of quality you've got in the field. And to do that assessment, you've got to look at what you inherited when you came into the club. And, um, and what you're paying for the players. So, you know, if you, if, you, if you wanted to take an overall efficiency table in, you'd have to include wages, you'd have to include um, agents' fees, etc. But you also have to take account of what the club's capable of paying. Um, and again, that's, that's where, that's where the, 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 the fact that Manchester United are outside this top 20 uh, in, uh, in the big five European leagues is so, is so um, marked and impressive because they are the club um, with the highest revenues in world football. And if you look at the Premier League clubs, they're almost invariably the one with the lowest um, wage to uh, revenue ratio. So they have the headroom to spend, but the club is making a decision not to spend because, as we've talked about many times in this podcast, the Glazers don't own Manchester United Football Club for the glory of winning trophies. They own it as a financial investment to make money for themselves and their family down the years. So the bottom line for them is making a profit. And they have appointed the chief executive whose priority is to make a profit and keep the, keep the profits running for the Glazer family rather than to win the Premier League or to win the Champions League. Yeah, another one that stands out on the table is Real Madrid in seventh place. Traditionally, huge spenders who you'd expect to be around the top. And we've been talking in the Transfer Window podcast for months about the kind of players that Real Madrid could be targeting as Galactico signings. What do you make of the fact they've only spent £167 million and 
languish in such a lowly position given their status as a super club? Not through want of trying, Johnny, it would be what I would say about that. Um, we know that they tried again and again to persuade uh, Paris Saint-Germain to sell Neymar. <clears throat> they also wanted to hijack Kylian Mbappe's loan deal, which uh, was converted into a permanent transfer from Monaco to take him to the Santiago Bernabeu. So uh, it's, I think it's a disappointing window for, for Real Madrid in terms of who they recruited. Um, I think it's interesting that obviously they've had a good start to the season and Karim Benzema, who was left out of the France squad uh, for the World Cup, um, came back refreshed and is absolutely on his game and motivated highly. And also, um, obviously, Julian Loptegui is, is, is someone who's come in and uh, has demanded more from the players. But with Real, you always feel that there's a, there's a ticking time bomb. You know, that, that there's always a manager waiting to be sacked. There's always a deal waiting to happen. And so you wouldn't rule out um, something happening in January uh, for Real if they're trailing Barcelona at that point. The first Classico is at the end of October, which is close enough to the opening of the January window to suggest that if they lose at Camp Nou and um, are behind in the title race, they will expend extravagantly in the January window. So um, they've been quiet for a couple of years now, Johnny. That's the other thing uh, we, we should you know bear in mind. Um, but Florentino Perez has a, a re-election um, I think in the summer of 2019. So, um, again, I, I suspect, suspect they're saving their pennies um, to make sure that Florentino gets the player he wants and needs and to ensure that he is re-elected rather than um, blow it in, in a, a year when he doesn't need that political leverage. Um, like we, Barcelona are, second, are, are, are at the top of that table, which is interesting given that <clears throat> traditionally in, in Spain they're not the club who spend a lot of money because they've been highly um, dependent on La Masia, their academy, uh, producing players for the last 15 years, which have done so very, very successfully. But that obviously has changed um, in terms of the way that Neymar was let, was taken out of, of Barcelona without being able to do anything about it. And um, the recruitment of um, of Dembele and then Coutinho was, were highly expensive. Uh, and it's, um, it's an interesting dynamic in the Spanish market now uh, be because... Uh, Teams like Napoli, teams like Valencia, I should say, sorry, and Sevilla appear in that top 20 list. And um, they've spent a lot of money. And Letting Madrid are also very high up on that list yeah, as well. Fourth. fourth, Johnny is correct. And, you, and you've got to note that they've also, Atletico, have renewed contracts for guys like Griezmann and Diego Godin um, at huge um, rates, uh, unexpectedly high rates. So their investment goes even beyond the, the surprise we might put into the transfer market. And the other thing, um, Johnny, to, to recognise um, is the impact of Cristiano Ronaldo's departure from Real Madrid to Juventus because um, Juventus are third above Atletico Madrid on that same table. And obviously the fee they paid for um, Ronaldo is the major reason for that. And very, very, I think, significant comments from um, Leo Messi in the last couple of days when asked about Ronaldo's departure, the first time he's spoken about it, given the two um, have had this 
incredible rivalry in the Liga for the last decade, that he feels that Real have been significantly weakened by Ronaldo's departure and that he feels that his um, setting for Juventus makes them favourites for the Champions League this season, which is not something you'd really expect Messi to say given the team he's playing in, the league he's playing in, and the way that Real have started the season, the, the, the fact that we've discussed already, Atletico strengthening as well. But um, you could say it's mind games, but I don't think so. Messi is someone who tends to be fairly forthright and honest in, in his opinions. And if he says that he thinks Juventus are Champions League favourite, then that's a very, very big statement, I think. Well, you're going to get a chance to give me your impressions on who's going to do well in the Champions League in the quickfire round later on. But you mentioned Cristiano Ronaldo, and that gives me a great opportunity to segue into the next question, which I wanted to look at, which is the social media impact of Cristiano Ronaldo's move to Juventus and how big an influencer social media is going to be in transfers moving forward. You know, with players like yeah. Ronaldo having, having millions of followers and having a massive impact potentially on the marketing of a team. Well, I think firstly we should note that um, Juventus gained 4.5 million new followers across their social media accounts, uh, mainly Facebook, uh, Twitter and Instagram, after in the wake of um, Ronaldo's signing. But just as significant was Real Madrid lost 1 million followers, well, in excess, actually, of 1 million followers across their social media accounts, which um, I think tells us something that we already suspected, and that is that with the global appeal that football has, uh, and by that I mean probably outside of, of Europe's top league, certainly, that um, fans are attracted mainly to their favourite player rather than striking up a solitary or exclusive allegiance with one particular club. So if you're a Ronaldo fan, then when he leaves Real Madrid, you unfollow Real Madrid and then follow Juventus. Now, I don't think we can even begin to estimate the impact that's going to have on the transfer market and player movement in the future because there's only one way social media is going, and that is up in terms of its usage and its influence um, in all areas of our lives and increasingly in football. Now, one of the reasons for that specifically is the financial one, and that is because when a club has a follower, um, whether it's through a player in Ronaldo or just through, as I said, allegiance to the club, they can market directly, obviously, through social media to that particular person and therefore their marketing merchandising even just their ticket sales which are limited obviously by space are affected by how many followers they have and how much they can make out of the database which they then possess of people who are interested in either FC Juventus or Real Madrid so I, I, I genuinely believe that um, when transfers happen, especially, as we say, at the elite level in the next few years, then the social media aspect of that um, a movement and amount of money that's paid, not just in terms of transfer fee, but also in wages and contract and image rights, will become a major factor which will influence who is bought, how much they're bought for, and the kind of contract they're put on. And in fact, Duncan, you could some information regarding Cristiano's history of negotiating at Real Madrid 
in the last decade, which was based on social media. Is that correct? Yeah, um, but just one one technical caveat on those um, Madrid disappearing followers. Um, it, it happened at the same time as Twitter cleared out a lot of bots, um, a, a lot of um, robot accounts. Um, so that it's probably slightly deceptive the number of followers that Madrid lost at that period, um, just by the coincidence of timing. I, was, I, was However, I, I lost two million of my followers actually at the same time. I was wondering about that. <laughs> they, they, they particularly, especially targeted you. You know, I think you should put a complaint into Twitter. Well, <laughs> um, it doesn't. It, it doesn't um, obscure the main point, which is Juventus went up four million at the same time uh, and that as a direct result of signing Cristiano Ronaldo and what I can tell you is that um, Cristiano Ronaldo's agent George Mendes in more than one contract renegotiation period with Real Madrid made it quite clear to the club that Cristiano Ronaldo had multiple more um, social media followers I forget the exact figures but it was it was a, an incredible advantage in Ronaldo's favour something like three or four times um, at one point and therefore he his argument was that Cristiano Ronaldo was um, the cause of a large chunk of Real Madrid's then record revenues and therefore should receive a higher percentage of those record revenues in his salary and successfully negotiated on that basis um, that he get a higher salary because commercial revenues as you point out are extremely important to football clubs in multiple so, Duncan, just, let me Let me just interrupt. Just It's important. Cristiano Ronaldo currently has 74.2 million followers on Twitter. And uh, also, you've also got to add in his Facebook followers, which I yep. think are... Instagram uh, as well. I think, are, I think his Facebook followers, at least at one stage, were more than his Twitter followers. Um, and it was certainly a period... You'd have to check the figures. I, I think also he is the most followed athlete in in all uh, in the planet in any sport, and at one point may have been the most followed person. Well, uh, again, in, compa in comparison, Duncan, Real Madrid's current Twitter following is thirty point eight million. So Cristiano has more than twice, more than double. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of where we go from there. I, Again, it's not a surprise. We've seen football change to this dynamic of Cristiano Ronaldo view, view versus Lionel Messi, who's the best player in the world, and whole seasons um, being described in the context of two individual players uh, fighting for Ballon d'Or uh, and FIFA awards, as opposed to two individual players fighting for the Champions League or, or trying to help their teams win the, the Spanish League. Um, so, so football has gone that way where there is this focus on, on individuals um, rather than the clubs they play for. And with those players developing the, the social media followings they do and the, the affinity with those players being greater than the clubs, again, no surprise that, that their followers, some of their followers switch allegiance when the player moves, as, as Cristiano Ronaldo did this summer. I know that Manchester United take... Um, social media following it into account when they make their um, recruitment decisions. Um, we've seen Ed Woodward in, in, in talks to investors uh, bragging about how many social media interactions the club managed to um, 
to achieve following the signing of Alexis Sanchez, for example. Um, I think um, it was very clear when Paul Pogba was signed by Manchester United, a player with a huge social media following and huge commercial potential to the club, who happened to be represented by um, the club's main uh, kit sponsor. Um, that deal was dragged out almost for the entire course of the summer when it was clear that Paul Pogba was going to Manchester United early on. Um, I think what happened there was that Manchester United and Adidas uh, liked the idea of having Paul Pogba on the back pages of uh, every newspaper every week for the entire summer uh, and were quite happy to string uh, the actual completions of the deal along and have, I mean, there were, there were various teaser videos and um, little con um, sort of suggestive stories leaked by Adidas um, during that period, which just um, amounted to free commercial exposure to them. So again, you're, you're looking there, not only at, at, as um, social media presence being relevant to the players who are signed, but being relevant to the way they're signed. Um, and I don't think any of this is going to go away from football because football is primarily now a business um, and it, or is run for business purposes by the majority of owners of football clubs rather than as a sporting um, venture. Another interesting aspect of it, Ian, and perhaps you can talk about this, being both a Celtic fan and a sage observer of events, was that Moussa Dembele, a player who we've talked about before, uh, moved to Lyon for €22 million. Euros, and part of that move was that Dembele used social media, Twitter, to have a pop at both his manager, Brendan Rodgers, and his club, Celtic, in a way to facilitate this deal to go through. Is that something we can expect to see more of? There's no doubt about that, Johnny. Um, players agitating to get the move they want is nothing new, um, and that will you know continue to be the case, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What's different now is that rather than it being quoted as a source close to the player or a friend of the player or etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, said you know that Dembele's desperate to leave or he's very unhappy with the way that this has been dealt with by the club, he can speak directly. You know, through his official Twitter account, his Instagram, his Facebook page, etc., and he can make it clear um, how unhappy he is with the way things have gone, and in doing so, that gives the club the opportunity to say, "Well, you all saw it for yourselves on his social media. He doesn't want to be here." So rather than the player pretending, which has often been the case, "Oh, I never asked for a move," and you know, I was very happy. I was actually quite shocked when they accepted the offer for me. Um, rather than that be the case and the club being portrayed as the bad guys who wanted to sell him for the profit, the club can actually say with all veracity that, well, you, you saw his posts, so you know that he didn't want to be here, so we got offered 22 million quid and we got him on a free, therefore what we're supposed to do. We, we, took, we did what was best for the football club. Now, I, I don't personally have any um, issue with that because you've got three parties involved in any transfer two clubs and one player. Leon wanted to get him. The player wanted to leave. And Celtic had to, to a degree, pretend that they didn't want to lose the player. But when he starts posting on social media that he wants to go and everything else, then they are guilt-free. They can simply say, well, you know, this is, this is with the will of the player. It has nothing to do with us. We were forced to sell him. So, 
you know, as long as everyone's um, up and above board and happy with the fact that the truth is being told, then that's fine. But but you're right in what you say in terms of the influence. <clears throat> but then the influence of social media, as we've already discussed with regards to Cristiano Ronaldo, is um, is huge. I don't think we've really felt the full force of it as yet with regards to what it can do in football or even in society. Um, to make reference very quickly to the whole Nike campaign with Colin Kaepernick, um, the reaction that has um, provoked in the United States and around the world has been incredible. And that's effectively been a social media campaign in itself. So, you know, as I said, I don't think we'll see any limit to the influence of social media with regards to sport in the coming years. And that means both financial and in terms of the transfer market and in terms of players themselves uh, effectively putting their will out there and saying, this is what I want to do, and you're not going to stop me. Okay, moving on to a little bit of news with regards to a big money contract. Manchester City are looking to tie up Raheem Sterling on a long-term deal, but perhaps talks are not going as well as the Manchester club would hope for. Duncan, could Pep Guardiola lose a player who has become one of his key men? Yeah, I think he could. Um, and the reasons why I think he could is um, Raheem Sterling and his representative, Eddie Ward, uh, will seek to get the maximum salary possible out of Manchester City. Um, uh, their argument is that he is uh, the most important homegrown player um, in the squad, uh, contributed hugely to the Premier League title last season um, with his goal scoring. Um, and goal making and goals scored at key moments in important matches um, a lot of last minute winners um, that he delivered last season um, and he expects to be rewarded appropriately um, and I think the key thing here is that Raheem Sterling has history when it comes to um, uh, forcing a move if he feels like he is not being paid appropriately um, to what his value is in the market. Um, we all saw what happened at Liverpool Football Club when he was there, when he essentially established himself as certainly the most important um, homegrown player with uh, a long-term, potential long-term future at the club and um, one of their most important um, attackers. Um, and uh, it wasn't very cleverly done from a, a public relations point of view and um, damaged Sterling's reputation in the longer term with the, the general public. But um, he stuck to his guns uh, and his agent stuck to his guns and they forced the move to Manchester City um, for a high transfer fee and for a very high wage for the player. Um, they got what they wanted. Uh, the strategy worked. And um, no, having talked to people who um, have spoken to Sterling about his long-term uh, goals in football. There's no sense with Raheem Sterling that he sees uh, Manchester City as being his inevitable long-term um, career choice. Uh, he has an interest in playing overseas, uh, particularly in the Spanish league. He would be open to move there. Um, and I what I see is a player who is prepared to fight to get the contract he wants and will be prepared 
to um, entice other clubs to get that and be prepared to leave if he has to leave. Obviously, it's extremely difficult to get out of Manchester City. Um, if you look since Abu Dhabi bought the club, I don't think they've sold a single player against their will, um, which means Sterling might be forced to run the contract to uh, its duration before leaving. But it also means that if City want to retain a player who's, who's become extremely important to Guardiola and probably more important at present than ever because Guardiola's decided to, to sideline Leroy Sané, um, so he needs Sterling um, to play in his position or to be one of the, the two wingers in the team, then they're going to have to consider giving Sterling um, a pay rise to the same level as the contract that they gave Kevin De Bruyne um, this summer. So, um, and that's a tough call because uh, the club it remains under pressure in terms of the wages they pay, not because Abu Dhabi can't afford to pay um, the highest wages in the Premier League, they certainly can, but because of financial fair play restrictions on them. And um, De Bruyne has obviously uh, been proved himself the most important player in the club last season. So if you decide to shift a player who, who contributed greatly, but isn't at that same level, onto the same wage level as De Bruyne, you'll get a number of other players asking for pre rises and, and you risk the potential of De Bruyne saying, well, um, I, want, I want a further increase um, to recognise the fact that I'm the most important player here. So it's, um, I don't think it's something that will be resolved quickly. For the reasons I I, uh, I mentioned, that uh, City hold the whip hand in the, in the sense that they they're very unlikely to to let to sell the player, but it's one that um, could affect the season and and is uh, you know one of those little things that bubble along in the background and and can have an effect on performances on the pitch. I think this is um <clears throat> this is a big gamble for Sterling and and for his representatives. In one sense, the um, Manchester City were very keen to extend and improve Sterling's contract ahead of last summer's World Cup. And they chose to end negotiations claiming that their client wanted to concentrate on England and playing well in Russia. Now, as we all know, there were mixed reviews for Sterling with regards to performances for England in the World Cup, which, of course, was overall uh, proclaimed as being a very successful tournament. But Sterling's performances were judged, I think, harshly. But, you know, that's one person's view. Um, but he didn't shine in the way that maybe a lot of people expected or, or thought he would on the basis of his Premier League performances for Manchester City last season, where he scored more and created more uh, goals than any other of the attacking midfielders. So... When I say it's a gamble, it's a gamble because they've already gambled. They've already played one hand, and that was the World Cup hand, and it's not come off. Uh, I think it was significant uh, that Pep Guardiola, in explaining Leroy Sané's absence from the squad uh, last weekend, described his 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 team, well, his squad and um, his selections as having six strikers. He said. He said six, and because he included all of his attacking midfielders as strikers. And he said, one week it's Leroy, the next week it could be Raheem, the next it could be Sergio, then it could be Gabriel, then it could be Kevin, 
And he went through every single one of them saying, you know, I've got so many options. I don't need to have every one of them in my squad every week. And I don't need to have, you know, every one of them available to me in my team every week. And I think that's significant because the Sterling negotiations have been difficult. And that was this, the Sani situation puts a light in the sand with regards to what City are prepared to go to in terms of improving and increasing his contract. I don't think there's any um, lack of uh, desire to see him stay and to extend his contract to the club. But I think there is a limit to what Manchester City are prepared to pay. And I think the signs and the vibes coming out of the club is that they will not be held to ransom. And of course, as Duncan has rightly pointed out, they try to do this, and I say Sterling and his representatives with Liverpool, and in the end, Liverpool said, no, we're not prepared to pay that. And they sold it for a very handsome profit. And I think that Sterling someone to me who doesn't strike me as a player who will fit in easily in a foreign league. I think he's very much a homeboy. Um, we've seen lots of um, lovely, uh, fluffy stories about buying houses for his family, etc., etc., and how close he is um, to, to those who are um, closest to him. So... As I said, the word gamble, I think, is appropriate because <clears throat> I think Sterling wants to stay in England. And if he wants to be the best paid player or the best played homegrown English player um, playing in England, then Manchester City is a place to be. So I think there's a compromise will have to be reached there. Otherwise, uh, I think City are the ones who hold the uh, what will be the, the deciding hand um, on this play. And that will be that they'll simply say, no, we're not going to pay that contract and we will we are prepared to sell you. Uh, to the highest bidder, which at that point I think, or I suspect, Sterling's uh, strong defence of his position may well crack. Yeah, it, it should be noted here that they have added Riyad Mahrez, who can play in Sterling's position in the summer, which uh, which strengthens their options if they do get into a difficult situation with Sterling and that they've got another very expensive, um, high-quality player in the squad um, to, to play that role. Um, and just in, on sort of new contracts, um, since we're discussing them, I think we should mention that the deal that Kasper Schmeichel um, has agreed with Leicester City uh, on Friday, which is a, a five-year um, new contract um, at uh, 3.2 million euros a year um, after tax, um, before bonuses, which makes him the highest paid uh, Danish player in the history of the game, um, which is relevant, I think, in two ways. One, uh, it shows the continued amount that uh, Leicester City are prepared to spend um, on their squad and on retaining key players. And also, it maybe just has a little um, relevance to what happens with Tottenham and Christian Eriksen, in that um, I would imagine Eriksen would not want to um, have that status lost to Schmeichel for very long, and we'd be expecting those figures to be surpassed um, by Tottenham uh, when, if he signs a new deal there, uh, and if he doesn't, certainly to be uh, surpassed by club any club he might move to. And there are obviously going to be a lot of um, clubs interested in signing a player who's been central to um, Tottenham's progress in, in the last few seasons. To be fair, Duncan, I'd take Schmeichel and go over Ericsson all day long. 
He's a bit bigger, isn't he? Okay, I'll move us on amidst the hilarity um, to the quickfire round. And today we're going to be looking at contenders and pretenders for the Champions League with the group stages just having been announced. Guys, I'm going to give you six uh, names of clubs, three each, and you can tell me whether or not you think they are contenders or pretenders for the biggest prize in club football. I'm going to start with you, Ian. Juventus. Well, the addition of Cristiano Ronaldo obviously has to be the most important factor in their challenge. Um, it's clear that uh, Juventus fans have been frustrated, as have the owners in uh, for the last seasons with regards to um, Juventus coming close and not quite getting over the line. Cristiano Ronaldo is a serial winner, um, most decorated uh, player in Champions League era and obviously outside of the European Cup that's why I'm saying Champions League era um, he is someone who can inspire is talismanic I just think that they, they can do better than they have done um, given Ronaldo's signing and I would say that they've been, already been contenders in, in as I say the last five years I think now the, the I would go with Messi and say they're one of the favourites Duncan, Madrid. Well, you, you can't uh, label a team that's won the last three Champions Leagues anything other than contenders um, because they have most of the, the quality of that squad, albeit they've lost the most important player and the, and the guy who's been the highest scorer in the Champions League for season after season. Um, they have the experience and they, and they have the quality there um, to be contenders again. Um, I think I would I would lean away from them as being favourites, however, because they've lost Ronaldo, because there always comes an end um, in terms of the hunger and commitment of players um, and their capability to keep on winning, and because they have a you know now have a coach in charge who doesn't have that um, experience at, of winning titles at the at the very top level, but yeah, you'd expect them to be in the running regardless. They're better rivals, Ian. Barcelona. Well, it's been a while now for Barcelona. And I think everyone in European football has been surprised by the uh, the soft way that they've exited um, Champions League in the last three seasons. Um, it'll be... I think Messi was uh, saying this rather ranging and, and I think quite um, interesting interview yesterday that he feels it's time for Barcelona to once again step up and become European champions. Uh, if their recruitment, that in terms of the players that they've they've brought on board in the last 18 months, um, comes to fruition, then they should certainly be semi-finalists at least. Um, it, I think now it will be about uh, combining those new players with the uh, the players who have Champions League winning experience uh, in the past and looking to them to uh, guide, if you like, their younger um, colleagues to the position where they, they no longer uh, lose, you know, three, four goals to the likes of Paris Saint-Germain. Um, I, I, I certainly see them as being semi-finalists, Johnny, um, and I think serious contenders uh, for, for being champions. 
Duncan, they have a new manager, but will it be a new Champions League done for PSG? Um, I think Paris Saint-Germain still have uh, a long way to go in terms of their the Qatar's ambition to make them uh, the European Cup winners. Um, they have a horrible history of throwing uh, games away when they when they have advantages in the competition. They haven't yet gone deep into the competition. Um, I don't see the coach um, that they've hired as uh, a significant upgrade on uh, Unai Emery um, in terms of you know adding the qualities um, and the experience um, that's generally needed to win these top titles. So um, although you know the, the squad is excellent in most areas, um, I, I wouldn't have them on my list of uh, favourites for the for the Champions League this season. Ian, it's normally Duncan that changes the rules uh, mid quickfire <laughs> round, but to is hell with it? that! I'm going to do it today. Manchester City, all or nothing. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, I'd say that uh, one of the factors for Manchester City in this year's Champions League is that they are champions of England and therefore having fulfilled uh, Pep Guardiola's um, initial, if you like, demand from the uh, Manchester City owners that he make them champions again, they have removed some of the pressure from themselves and done it obviously in a very stylish way with record goals scored and points total etc and I say that because that's important um, very very few clubs historically managed to win their domestic league and the Champions League now I'm not saying that Manchester City are going to shift their emphasis um, away from the Premier League to the Champions League this season because I'm not privy um, to that information or at this moment in time but I would say that there will be a focus which is um, much more um, defined with regards to the campaign in Europe uh, in the coming months. So therefore, um, I would sense that even Manchester City's players themselves, uh, there is this, um, I guess, there's a demand from the Abu Dhabi owners that, that Manchester City become champions of Europe. We're getting closer to the 2022 World Cup, which is incredibly important, obviously, with regards to the prestige of Manchester City and indeed the whole geographical area with regards to there being um, a club owned by uh, uh, Abu Dhabi if you, um, in order that the, the European champions, they can take that claim. So if the, if the word came down um, from Sheikh Mansour at some point towards the quarterfinals that, listen, will cut you some slack in the Premier League if you can just focus on the Champions League and get us there and get us over the line, then I wouldn't be surprised um, if they were there or thereabouts at the end of the season. Duncan, this is the McFarlane top tip for Champions League glory, so expect this to become a viral video in May or to be lost in the annals of time. If not, Liverpool. Well, it's uh, Liverpool's year again, according to the fans, so... Um... Obviously, you'll be sending your video out if that if that prediction comes right. Um, personally, I could see Liverpool departing at the group stage. Um, they've got a top, a top big five. statement from the Castles. Paris Saint Germain, Napoli, um, and even Red Star Belgrade, the the fourth club, uh, might. 
pose a problem, but it's the top two teams there that I think are um, are going to test Liverpool's credentials in the Champions League. Uh, and I don't, uh, yeah, we've, we've talked about this several times. They've improved the quality of their squad, um, having watched four uh, Premier League games, um, which they've all won. Um, I haven't seen the change in style of play and the development of a, a tactical plan B um, that I think is required if you're going to win um, the Champions League. Um, so I think they'll do better uh, than last season overall um, in terms of their overall performances in league and, and cup combined. But I don't think at, at the top level of the Champions League, you need to have um, tactical variation. And that's where Manchester City have gone wrong. And I don't Duncan, see if that. you don't think Alisson delivers tactical variation after what we saw at the weekend, then I'm sorry. You're not getting back on this quick fire round. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a very, it's a variation. Um, uh, and, uh, and an enjoyable variation for uh, neutral observers. But uh, I'm not sure uh, I'm not sure Jurgen Klopp's very pleased with the variation that Alisson has, has. Well, it actually isn't a variation on his goalkeeper performances. Let's face it, the, the, the two previous used to that. exactly the same thing. So. <laughs> but I have to say, though, Johnny, that whenever I hear anyone use the phrase lost in your annals, I, I, it sends a shiver down my spine. But after what Duncan just predicting they go out in the group stage, then I think this is going to be a bet. Come on, there's going to be a ten pound bet for charity here. You think they're going to win it, and Duncan thinks they're, they're going to go out in the group stage. One of you's got to donate ten quid to a charity here. Come on, choose your charities. Listen, Ian, we're not big bucks uh, McBookie types like yourself. I mean, ten pounds. <laughs> I mean, that's is that a lot of money. <laughs> I'm happy. To, I'm happy to lay ten pounds against Johnny's uh, expectation that they'll win the Champions League. Quite happy to go with that one. Johnny, are you happy to... If they go out of the group stages, I'm happy to donate... Ah, come on, stick to your original words. I said I could see them leaving at the group stage. I didn't say they would leave at the group stage, but you told us that they were going to be Champions League winners. So It is my belief that they will do Boys, extremely let me, well. Let me suggest that we make a we make a donation to the Alder Hay Children's Hospital in Liverpool, regardless of who wins this bet. Yeah, So whoever wins yep. that bet makes a donation to Alder Hay. Done. Done. And while we're talking bets... Um, just if you're, I, I don't know the odds because I'm not a betting man, but I would have a look at the odds for Atletico Madrid in the Champions League and maybe uh, fancy a sneaky each way bet on them because I think they have retained the quality in what was already an excellent squad, uh, invested heavily in it. They've got a coach who is capable of, of that kind of tactical variation that's very important in Europe and has a history of success in European competition. So I think they're the best outsiders this season. And with that, I'm slamming this particular transfer window shut. Just a reminder, we are looking for a sponsor. So if you like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast, so please, please, please go and give that a follow for all the latest news and information. We're trying to build a community on that account, so everyone who follows will also get a follow back. To talk to us individually, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, and most importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at SG. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. 
We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm. So until next time, thanks for listening.